You're listening to the Thesis Review Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Wellick. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Washington, and my research focuses on machine learning, natural language processing, and structured prediction. On the Thesis Review, I'll interview researchers from around the field, centering the conversation around their PhD thesis. In addition to exploring the technical content, this will give insight into their history as a researcher, allow us to revisit older ideas, and provide a valuable perspective on how their research and the field itself has evolved since their PhD days. My guest today is Michaela Paganini, who is currently a research scientist at DeepMind. Her research focuses on investigating ways to compress and scale up neural networks. Michaela's PhD thesis is titled Machine Learning Solutions for High Energy Physics, Applications to Electromagnetic Shower Generation, Flavor Tagging, and the Search for Dye Higgs Production which she completed in 2019 at Yale University. We discussed Michaela's work during the PhD, which brought deep learning to problems in high-energy physics, connected with the ATLAS experiment at the Large Hadron Collider, or LHC, which is located at CERN, the European Organization for Nuclear Research in Switzerland. We talk about her work on jet tagging and using generative adversarial networks for simulation, the impact of machine learning and physics and physics and machine learning, and how the physics mindset plays a role in her machine learning research today. The thesis review is available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at Thesis Review. If you'd like to support the podcast, please go to patreon.com slash thesis review, where you can subscribe and become a recurring supporter, or please make a one-time donation at buymeacoffee.com slash thesis review. There are links to the thesis and the papers that we mentioned in the show notes. Here's Michaela Paganini with Machine Learning Solutions for High Energy Physics on the Thesis Review. So in your thesis, you look into both machine learning and deep learning specifically, as well as high energy physics. So a fun question to start. Do you think that we'll achieve a complete understanding of all the fundamental particles and forces of nature first, or will we achieve a complete understanding of deep neural networks? I think both of these have become difficult problems. Absolutely. I mean, these are both extremely difficult problems. So I think my Short answer here would be neither, uh, but the key word in your question would, would be complete. Uh, and to that end, I don't think, you know, what, what does it even mean for understanding to ever be complete? Like, how do we know even if a theory is complete, right? So I think at best, what we will one day be able to say is that we just haven't found any observation that seems to be inconsistent with the understanding that we will have one day of whether it's particle physics or, or the science of deep learning. But um, yeah, it, I don't think we will ever be able to say it, it's a complete understanding. Now, with that said, which one will we achieve first in terms of maybe a more mature understanding? Well, certainly we are already at a much more mature understanding of, of particle physics through the standard model. Um, and I think we will probably be making even more discoveries in physics, because we kind of know where to look mm-hmm. and we have more principled approaches that have worked for us in the past. Uh, with machine learning, this is still a nascent field, so I think it will be a while longer. Just staying on this for a bit to brainstorm, like, do you think that the, the type of understanding that we have in physics, like you mentioned, it's more mature. Do you think that there's a different type of understanding that we look for in machine learning, that maybe it's more like driven by tasks? Or do you think that fundamentally we aim for the same type of understanding? I think perhaps we should aim for similar types of understandings. I don't think we currently do for many reasons. Uh, And one of them is that right now, machine learning is not a fully scientific field. A lot of it, as you said, is task driven. So uh, perhaps it's more of an engineering field in the sense that what we want to do is to uh, build things that work 
And there is a portion of the community that is interested in understanding, well, why do they work? Why do they work in this particular way? But these are two completely different efforts, intellectual efforts. Both of them are equally valid. I don't want to necessarily put one higher than the other, but there are different concerns. Um, with physics, pure physics, at least, we are interested in really getting at the how and the why of certain fundamental interactions. And that is the main pursuit that everybody buys into. I don't think there is that same kind of agreement in the machine learning community. I see. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see if that changes, that changes over time. I mean, maybe there is some kind of flurry of activity that's more engineering-like currently, and later on, more theory, more rigorous scientific practice could pick up potentially. Absolutely. I think, again, both of them are valid, and maybe that is because machine learning is a much more immediately applicable uh, field of research. So it's obvious that the more pragmatic aspects will take a more prominent prominent role in a place like machine learning that than perhaps high energy particle physics. Um, but again, both aspects are important and there are plenty of researchers, of course, and I want to give everybody credit um, <laughs> that are already looking into the science of deep learning objectives. So certainly quite a lot of movement in that direction. And it's also exciting to see a lot of ex-physicists maybe contributing to some of these paths. So yeah, let's maybe go back before we talk about your thesis and talk about these uh, more of these uh, high-level philosophical ideas. Let's go back to how you got started. So how did you get interested in physics originally and then eventually in doing a PhD? Yeah, so I, I attended a scientific high school in Italy, which is where I'm from. Uh, so this passion really has been with me for a really long time, I think, I understood really early on that I was passionate about asking questions and finding answers, which is, you know, uh, maybe a kid's understanding of what physics is all about, but I think it's it's, it's the purest form of physics. So I still um, believe that that is true about anybody who uh, pursues a career in physics or in the physical sciences in general or in the sciences in general. Um, and then over time, as I explored, you know, maybe chemistry, astronomy, physics, and so on. I really initially settled on astrophysics. That's what I wanted to do. And so I decided to go to college um, in Berkeley, uh, one of the places that had an astrophysics department that would grant an astrophysics degree uh, at an undergraduate level. Um, and I double majored in physics as well. So I, I knew from the, very, from the very beginning, while I was even applying for college, that that was the major that I wanted to declare at some point. Um, and then in terms of pursuing a PhD, to be quite honest, I never really put that much thought into it. Uh, it looked like an obvious path. It looked like what everybody else around me was doing. It looked natural. So yeah, perhaps I should have reflected more on whether that was the right path for me. But uh, you know, for what I had in mind, which was eventually becoming a professor in physics, that was the one and only path. So I didn't really, yeah, think that hard and deep about it. And then I was looking back and I think you were doing undergrad at the time that the Higgs boson was discovered. So I'm sure as we'll discuss today, like a lot of your work in the PhD had to do with CERN and the LHC where this occurred. Do you think that in retrospect that somehow uh, like motivated you to go into this area during your PhD or was it kind of not related? Uh, it was in part. I was actually at CERN during the time that the Higgs discovery was announced. Uh, and that was oh, wow. during my undergraduate studies. I got the chance to intern with a team of researchers from the University of Milan uh, who welcomed me in their team. They were not working on Higgs boson related physics. They were working uh, on antimatter production. Uh, but they had a presence at CERN, so not everything that happens at CERN is related to the Large Hadron Collider and to uh, the Higgs searches. Uh, but in any case, I was able to be on campus around that time, and it was just a fantastic opportunity. Uh, and of course, yes, that had a huge impact on my career. But you know, Higgs discovery or not, just 
living that experience of being at CERN um, was was certainly very impactful and it was a deciding moment uh, for me. And in terms of focusing on Higgs research versus other types of particle physics research, I actually did not initially intend to work on the Higgs boson. I ended up working on Higgs boson related stuff among other things. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it was just one of the many uh, interesting uh, analyses that were going on at that place. So certainly, yes, the, the big announcement and the interest from the broader community pointed me in that direction, but it wasn't the only factor. Mm -hmm. I see. Yeah. So then eventually, uh, I guess you decided to do the PhD. And then looking through your resume, it seemed like the PhD was done at, in some sense, three different places. So it was with Yale and then also at CERN and Berkeley National Lab. Could you just kind of um, describe the, the situation in these di different settings uh, and like at what stage of the PhD uh, were each of those? Absolutely, yes, you're 100% correct. Those are the three places that welcome me uh, during my PhD years. So of course I was a, a student at Yale in the physics department and that setting is the typical university setting that you might have in mind with a smaller lab headed by a professor with a couple of postdocs and then a handful of graduate students. And then in the summer, we would even have undergraduate students joining us, usually at CERN. So, you know, we while working on research at Yale, we were able to either be on campus at Yale or on campus at CERN, depending on personal circumstances and preferences or, or research demands. Um, so I worked as a member of the ATLAS experiment, and we can talk more about what that means in a second, uh, but that's one of the collaborations that operates one of the four detectors at the Large Hadron Collider, which is this machine that is housed at CERN. And so as a member of that collaboration, even as a, a Yale student, I was then a user of CERN, so I was a member of the CERN community. Uh, and CERN is located in Geneva, Switzerland, so on the other side of the world. And it's a completely different um, type of, of setting there. It's this huge international um, organization. I, I really you know, can't ever find the words to describe what, what it was really like. It's a very laid back environment, very friendly. You're always surrounded by people of all sorts of nationalities, extremely brilliant inspiring people and even the place itself you know you you walk down these hallways and you know that history of science was made there so this is very awe-inspiring you you're always brought to 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 this understanding that you're contributing to uh history in the making um so you're part of kind of something bigger than yourself and uh, you're surrounded by physicists computer scientists software engineers and uh, researchers both in hardware and software and, and everything. Um, so that's CERN. And I ended up spending every single summer of my PhD there, uh, as well as I think two years in a row, just, just stable there, plus various other tri trips over time. Um, and then towards the end of my PhD, for, for personal reasons, um, I decided I wanted to move back to California, and I was uh, granted an opportunity by a group at Berkeley Lab, also known as Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, which is uh, located, if you're familiar with the Berkeley area, just up the hill from the campus. Um, and the culture there is, is not dissimilar at all from that of CERN. It's, it's a, a place of great culture, great historical relevance once again. Um, but it's a bit more maybe diversified in terms of the research pursuits compared to CERN. So we, we range from biology to nuclear physics, computing, um, and a lot more. And it's, it's run and operated and funded by the Department of Energy, so U.S. government lab. Um, but yeah, they, they welcomed me into the family. They initially hired me for an inter a summer internships in uh, computing, so working on AI uh, and science. And then I ended up uh, spending almost two years there as an affiliate towards the end of my PhD. So um, yeah, forever thankful to the family there as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a really cool experience getting, uh, getting to see these three different places. And it sounds like each, each one of them was a great place to do research. 
Absolutely. Yes. In very different ways, but all of them really contributed to, to where I am right now. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe let's, if you can give some key physics background for uh, probably what we'll discuss today. So um, for instance, like what is the LHC and, and CERN and you mentioned Atlas and these are things that occur throughout your thesis. So if you could just introduce those ideas, I think it'll be useful for the rest of the uh, discussion. Of course, yes. And I've already mentioned a few of these names. So to avoid the jargon, let's actually maybe try to define a few of these. So I mentioned CERN. CERN is the um, European Organization for Nuclear Research. It's uh, an international organization uh, with many member states, most of them based in Europe, but um, some of them either full members or affiliate members, I think, um, have been, you know, located across the world right now. And certainly all of the researchers working there are of any uh, nationality, really. So it's, a, it's an extremely welcoming place. Um, it's home of a very many experiments and machines, one of which, probably one of its most famous, is the Large Hadron Collider, also known as the LHC. So the LHC is this uh, huge particle uh, accelerator and collider, uh, circular-ish in shape. Uh, it's buried about like 100 meters below ground across the borders between France and Switzerland, outside of the city of Geneva. Um, and it's about 27 kilometers in circumference, if I remember correctly. Um, and it's one of, it is the most powerful accelerator ever built up until now, at least. Um, at least I think in terms of um, the energies that it's able to reach. Um, but of course, you know, we, we are already thinking ahead about the next generations of machines and those will certainly uh, surpass it. So um, it's, it's just a starting point, let's say, for the field. Um, and it was built to probe um, all sorts of uh, standard model phenomena. We can talk about what the standard model is as well. Um, but the important part is that the energy, uh, so we work at the energy frontier, meaning that we want to continue pushing the boundaries um, of knowledge in terms of high energy phenomena. So new phenomena that only occur at very high energies and do not occur uh, at energies like the ones that we're used to in the, in the real world around us. Um, in terms of uh, collision points, so right, you have the circular particle accelerator we just talked about, and you have two beams of usually protons going in circles um, around uh, these, these tubes, and they are brought to collision at four independent points. Uh, around which we built detectors. So detectors are these big machines um, that stand in the way of particles. So when particles collide and then move outwards, what we want to do is to measure their properties. And the way we measure their properties is to uh, have these particles interact with matter. So as matter uh, slows them down and stops them eventually, uh, we are able to, to measure some properties of these particles and then figure out what happens at the collision point. And so there are four major um, experiments of so four major detectors, one of which is ATLAS. And ATLAS, the one that I worked on, is this multi-purpose detector. I think it's the biggest one ever built, once again. And it allows for all sorts of different uh, physics experiments. It's an extremely uh, complex uh, beast. And it's also the name of the collaboration of scientists that formed around it that currently um, operates it, but also previously planned it, built it, and and still maintains it. It it seems just really amazing. I mean, the idea that a lot of this was developed theoretically, I guess, and then this large experiment was built to kind of experimentally confirm parts of the theory. And so it's like a really nice story of the scientific process. Yes, I think uh, physics has experienced different regimes. So in some cases in the past, experiment preceded theory. So we only ha like, had the chance to make sense of some of these exper experiments that we, were, um, that we were running and these observations we were making after the observations were indeed made. And then over time, we entered a regime where theory um, has been 
far ahead in front of experiment. And that's because obviously running experiments at this energy, um, you know, comes with quite steep costs and uh, it, it's important to, to plan ahead. And, you know, the LHC, I think, was was initially approved back in the 90s and it's still operating and centering new phases as being upgraded uh, year after year. Um, so, yeah, so both of, of these regimes happened in, his, in the history of science and the history of physics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so before going into the thesis, maybe just one more fun question on this. So we have the standard model um, and I guess there's, what, 17 different fundamental particles in it? I don't know if anything. So I have a screenshot from your thesis and I'm, I'm counting as I'm talking. So, <laughs> and uh, yeah, there's, there's this question of um, like, are things that we discover in physics, like very elegant and compact is simplicity kind of inherent in the universe. So when you think about the standard model, do you think of it as being something elegant that we found, or is it maybe more complicated than you might've originally expected? Um, I personally think it's it's extremely elegant and and quite compact if you think about the multitude of phenomena that it's able to describe in in these very few uh, concise set of equations or, or terms in this equation. So um, it's able to take advantage of the symmetries in nature and with with yeah just a few additive terms describe all of the fundamental interactions that uh that we know of right now and again a a set of fundamental particles that we have been able to observe um so i would say it's elegant uh of course there are some you know sort of disconcerting parts about it so when you look at some of these uh constants that arise in this model and it's not necessarily clear why they have exactly the values that they do have and why some of them are orders of magnitude bigger than others and why is that the case you know perhaps we would expect some of these numbers to to fall within the same ranges of of every other number that just spontaneously occurs and uh in our theories so you know obviously there are some pieces there that are not quite as as elegant as we wished but maybe that's just our human bias we would love for everything to uh be of order one but it may or may not have to be you know who knows yeah yeah okay well i I think let's start going towards the thesis so the the title is machine learning solutions for high energy physics and so maybe to start like where was the idea of using machine learning and then deep learning in high energy physics and i know it's a really broad question so if it helps to say like where was it seen as being used at atlas at the time yeah, so of course, like I, I can only give this answer to the extent that I was able to observe that through my own eyes, it may or may not be the exact case. Uh, but um, to to what I yeah what I could observe and experience deep learning, especially back in 2013 when I started my PhD, uh, was I would say almost entirely unexplored, at least within Atlas, and I think. Um, across other experiments uh, of a similar similar variety. Um, And I think, and again, I I don't want to be like a revisionist of history, but I do think that our group at Yale was one of the first ones to go down the path of deep learning. And that's mostly based on the very strong collaboration that um, my advisor at the time and other people in the physics department were able to forge with the applied math department at Yale. Um, and so we were able to, to have people who were studying neural networks and machine learning, deep learning, uh, come over to CERN and help us out with some of the tasks there. And um, some of them even went on to write, you know, our own uh, custom tools in, in C++, like custom deep learning libraries that were able to um, interface with the rest of the C++ code base that we have at LEC Experiments. And this was, you know, years before anything like TensorFlow um, would would come out and be made available as a third party extension, you know? Uh, So everything was really 
uh, in, its, in its very primitive form at the time when we started playing around with these tools. Uh, with that said, of course, like neural networks in general and, uh, and machine learning even more broadly had existed in high energy physics for decades, you know, mm. uh, support vector machines, boosted decision trees, and even shallow neural networks, as I said, those had been explored for a long time. It's more of a matter of training these deep neural networks and all of the, you know, bells and whistles that are required for the training to, to converge in a finite <laughs> number of iterations. And that understanding of deep learning that we have these days, that was kind of new. Um, and I like to think that, that I and then my group in general, my advisors, like played a, a big role in uh, um, transitioning the field into the new AI world. So how did you, just as some backstory, like how did you begin to identify places where deep learning could potentially be useful yeah, so first of all, it was mostly through the mentorship and the guidance of my advisors at the time and more senior graduate students in our group. Uh, they had already done a lot of the pre-work, uh, knowing uh, where the low-hanging fruit were and where um, deep learning could be most effective because they understood the problems in physics better than I did at the time. Um, and so I think it's, it is really important to... Uh, be grounded in the application domain that you're trying to revolutionize or disrupt or whatever with mm -hmm. machine learning to be able to do so effectively. You need to be respectful, of course, of the field, of the tradition, understand um, even the social and, and cultural um, environment in which uh, you want to insert yourself with a new solution. And so I was very blessed to, to be embedded in this group of people um, that had been really thoughtful for years before I even joined. Um, but then, of course, as you become more experienced, as I became, became more experienced, I, I started noticing uh, room for opportunities. So, you know, you, as a graduate student, you encounter pieces of code or, or experiments, and you naturally tend to ask, like, why is this done this way? Can we do any better? Can this be faster? Can this be more lightweight? And, and then it's up to you to try to make it exactly that. And so you'll start seeing patterns um, for areas where your techniques seem to be more successful than others, and then try to draw your conclusions about what's special about those applications, and then use that to guide you in the correct direction in the future. Mm -hmm. I see. Yeah. And then I should say, so the first two uh, major sections of the thesis have really nice overviews. So one of the overview of the physics side, which was accessible enough for me to get another get a window into what was happening here. Glad to hear. <laughs> and then uh, an overview of the machine learning side. I guess potentially like aimed at physicists in the in the field, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Correct. And then um, there's several sections. So one maybe just to start. Uh, discussing something that you've worked on here. One was on this idea of jet tagging. So did you maybe want to unpack that? What is a jet? Uh, it, did I even identify this as the correct thing that uh, you're applying deep learning to? Yes, absolutely. You're 100% right once again. So yeah, let me define <laughs> jets uh, and jet tagging. That was a big part um, of what I spent my time working on, especially at the beginning of my career at CERN. Um, so to become, first of all, just to give you a little bit of social context, to become a full member of one of those collaborations at the LHC, so to be able to have authorship rights, to be able to sign the papers that the collaboration puts out, um, you have to work for about a year on a um, collaboration-driven uh, technical um task that's called the qualification task and my qualification task was on jet tagging so i i worked on it for a very long time and so what are jets first of all so jets are these cone-like structures uh, that tend to form along the path of a particle that is moving moving and traveling and decaying through our detector and so as it decays it creates this cascade of secondary particles that then themselves decay. And so this is why as they all move in some initial direction, they form this cone of particles until eventually they all stop or escape the detector. 
Um, and we say that the LHC is almost like a jet making machine in the sense that a lot of particles in the LHC um, will form jets. So they're everywhere and it's really, really important to identify them and classify them correctly. And because again, a lot of different particles generate jets. So the, ta the task of jet tagging is in fact the task of reconstructing and classifying jets depending on the nature of the original particle that generated them. Now, unfortunately, a lot of particles uh, tend to generate very similar looking jets, so it is quite hard uh, to classify them correctly, but it's extremely important because if you mistag or misclassify a jet, you might be brought to believe that a certain physical process occurred that actually maybe did not. Uh, and so that is why it's so important to, to be able to classify that correctly. So then in terms of like someone working, um, like a physicist working on a problem here, if you were to improve jet tagging, would they... Would it be noticeable in like the wider project or like how does this kind of fit in to the to the wider project going on, if that makes sense? Yes, absolutely. That's a good question. I mean, I'm a little bit biased here because that's what I worked on, but I think extremely impactful application. Uh, flavor tagging or jet tagging, just another way uh, to, to call this task, is key for every analysis that uses, that analyzes particles that indeed produce jets, which as I said, are many of them. Uh, and therefore, whether you're looking for supersymmetry or tiny black holes or measuring with the highest ever degree of accuracy, some property of the standard model that we already know about, whatever you're doing, you are likely to use jet tagging somewhere along your analysis pipeline. So if you can make an improvement there, you can really touch a lot of different physics analyses. Mm -hmm. I see. And then you discussed um, different representations of the jets. So it seems like there's different decisions you could make in actually how you define what a jet is to the machine learning model. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Once again, um, yes. So I think this enters more the uh, area of data science, data representation, and something that is uh, maybe a bit of more interest of, uh, of the machine learning community. And it is, you know, you have nature out there, how you capture it um, will sort of constrain the way that you are allowed to interact with it. So if you represent a jet um, as an image, because you take a snapshot in space and time of what the jet looks like as projected onto a two-dimensional surface, which can be like a canvas of, of a picture, um, then you are allowed to bring in the entire arsenal of computer vision uh, techniques to allow you to analyze that data format. But there was some sort of data compression that happened in the process of representing the jet as an image. And so how much information did you lose through that process? Was that a lossy compression or, or not? Um, and how constrained are you now to, to using that image representation? Can you ever try to recover any uh, other representation once you have you squashed the jet onto an image? Um, so I think there are plenty of advantages and disadvantages with every representation. I can't tell you necessarily that there is one that is absolutely best. It totally depends on what you're trying to do how much resolution you need to know, like do you need to know the substructure of the jet or are you happy with a, you know, kind of like low definition uh, image of the jet? It really depends on the type of physics that you're probing. In, in many cases, you're okay with a, you know, overall description of what's happening. And in other cases, instead of getting to probe the substructure of these jets, it's, it's key to understand exactly what's going on. Um, so other representations that I played around with at the time were um, sequence representations. So now imagine you have this cone of particles, right, all coming from an original one. These are all, um, these all form tracks, and tracks is just a word to say trajectories in our detector. And so if you can, instead of representing the jet as an image, you can represent it as a sequence of these tracks. So you put them all in order of energy or order of momentum, 
and you have the sequence and you can now process it maybe with an LSTM or GRU or whatever um, you have maybe from the NLP uh, side of, of things. So you can borrow from uh, that side of the AI literature. Um, maybe one of the most uh, high definition, uh, but sometimes maybe a bit cumbersome uh, type of representations could be that of a graph. Uh, so you can now apply graph neural networks to them. Um, but then you have all sorts of other concerns in mind, like what, what are some of the latency um, and, and runtime requirements, uh, which one of these representations allows us to integrate our model within the whole analysis pipeline in the most seamless way. Um, so, you know, yes, there are a lot of considerations to be made in terms of deciding what data representation to use. Yeah, I see. And so then this was one of the projects that you worked on. You developed a recurrent based model. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Um, and it was exactly for jet tagging. So once again, we took a track-based approach. And so we decided to, to use that fine-grained uh, information that we had to try to exploit also the, um, the correlations among tracks, because if these are all coming from a particular decay, then certain tracks will be related to each other. And it's important to be able to capture these relationships instead of um, modeling them as fully independent um, items within your larger jet. So uh, we, we did investigate using uh, recurrent neural networks for jet classification, and we, we did achieve um, you know improvements over some of the baselines and were more like likelihood-based uh, methods at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to think about this, this back and forth, because as you mentioned, like techniques from NLP could be beneficial for these sequence representations. And then I was wondering, like, if in some sense, like in science, if we just start working on a really difficult problem, then that could lead to uh, to breakthroughs. So I was wondering, like, do you think some of these physics problems will actually require fundamentally new machine learning methods? And so we might actually see a back and forth where maybe we draw in some, I don't know, NLP techniques and that helps with the physics problems. But then actually we run into new types of physics problems and have to develop new machine learning methods that then maybe benefit more uh, classical areas of machine learning. Absolutely. That's the way that I like to think about it. There's always an interplay between physics and AI, and it's not just one field borrowing from the other, but I hope it is a, a two-way uh, road. So I think there are some unique challenges um, within the applications that are across all the physical sciences. And um, one of them, just to, just to name one, is the fact that we do have quite strong inductive biases of you know, what some of these distri data distributions look like, what symmetries they have to um, respect, uh, what invariances and covariances we observe uh, in the data. And if we do have this prior knowledge, how do we uh, incorporate it into our models if we want to force the model to respect them. And I think quite a few physicists uh, that have transitioned into AI research or even physicists that have remained in the physical sciences have contributed to um, advances in that sense. So we, we now have, you know, equivariant uh, neural networks. We have Hamiltonian neural networks that try to incorporate or, or match some of the um, Hamiltonian dynamics of a, of a system, of dynamical system that we're trying to model and enroll in time and those are all advances in machine learning that have been brought upon by um, thinking about applications that have these specific requirements is oftentimes being applications in the sciences so yes i do think there is quite a lot of cross-pollination between the two where uh, both can um, learn a lot from each other and um, and really benefit from from these conversations yeah that's a good example with the um the invariances that's that's interesting i hadn't made that connection so an, another project that um, I guess I was more familiar with was trying to introduce GANs into the picture somewhere. And so it looked like um, simulation, you're able to incorporate these generative adversarial networks for simulation. Could you just talk a bit about that uh, project and yeah. how you got started on it? Of course, yes. So, uh, so here we're talking about simulation of 
particle collisions and then the interactions of the remnants of these collisions with the detector material. Uh, simulating that part is extremely computationally intensive. If Even if we do have these wonderful simulators that do include all sorts of physical processes from pair production to bremsstrahlung and all sorts of things that could be happening whenever a particle interacts with uh, one portion of the detector. And exactly what will occur at every single instance, let's say at every single step of this Markov chain is obviously probabilistic in nature, but it does depend on some of the parameters of the incoming particles, some of the properties of the materials, it's a high energy event or a low energy event. So depending on the energy regimes, some physical processes will be more likely than others. So you can imagine the complexity of the simulator and just the fact that we have a system that is capable of simulating all of that is a feat of engineering. But of course, it is quite cumbersome to run. Um, and as the LHC continues to produce higher and higher statistics, so higher and higher um, amounts of, of data to be able to uh, build uh, statistically sound expectations for what we would expect to observe in one scenario or another, we need to have equal, if not larger amounts of simulated data. So there is a really high demand for the simulators to be run constantly. And, and simulation takes up over half of the worldwide computing resources that we have available uh, across the LHC and in high energy physics in general. So it's a huge bottleneck. <laughs> we spend a lot of money and time producing simulation and we still don't have enough. Um, and so it was, it was easy to identify that as a bottleneck. It's been talked about for a long time in the community. And so uh, given that I uh, was able at the time to attend many AI conferences already and see what was going on on that side, uh, of things, you know, back in 2015, 2016, I believe, um, there was a resurgence in interest in generative modeling, uh, even on the AI side of things, and, and GANs were uh, obviously quite prominent, they still are quite prominent in terms of uh, what you'd see at an AI conference. Um, and so we did take like a pretty parallelized approach. So my team was looking into GANs, but there were, and there are other teams that are looking into VAEs or uh, mm -hmm. flow-based models. So, you know, we weren't necessarily rooting for one solution or another. We just wanted to, you know, diversify our portfolio to maximize our chances. I just happened to, to be working on a GAN-based solution. Um, and what we were trying to do with the GAN is to, uh, take one tiny part of that simulation pipeline that I described and try to emulate that and replace it, or at least augment it actually is the better word, um, with a deep generative model that was able to capture uh, the data distribution that this part of the simulator was focusing on. Um, and so that's, that's what I decided to work on for a large chunk of, of my PhD years. And then the resulting simulator you said it was motivated by doing fast simulation. So did the resulting simulator end up being a lot faster? Yes, uh, it did. Of course, like we were still operating in sort of like a toy problem, well, maybe not a toy problem, but a restricted scenario than the full complexity that is simulation in an experiment like Atlas. But in that specific experiment where we did narrow down uh, the, the, the complexity of the simulation to just some specific uh, particle cascades and uh, specific angles and then with a particular geometry of the detector. So there are a lot of asterisks to what I'm about to say, but in that context, um, we were able to demonstrate that you could speed up simulation by hundreds of thousands of times um, compared to some of the traditional simulation. Um, again, of course, with a lot of caveats, but but it was really promising. Like all that we were trying to do is a, was a proof of concept. So you know, none of these numbers necessarily uh, mean anything out of context, but it was promising. It was worth investing in, and in fact, that's what the community ended up doing. And you know, people are still working on this, and there are hundreds of GANs, VAE-like models now um, in production and experiments like Atlas. Uh, to run parts of the simulation. So all that we needed to do at that time was to show that the gains were big enough um, for this to be worthy of investment. Yeah, I see. So do you think that, um, so there were these different 
uh, I guess, existing libraries for doing the simulation. Do you think that eventually most of it will be machine learning based? I know it's probably a pretty speculative question. Yes, it is nice to speculate, I think. Um, <laughs> I would say already quite a lot of uh, the simulation is probably run through some sort of machine learning model. Uh, I'm no longer part of the collaboration, so I can't necessarily verify this, but uh, for what I've heard, um, there are uh, a lot of GAN-like models that are being explored uh, at the moment. So um, I think we will be moving towards a future where more and more, um, you know, tiny parts of this very high dimensional distribution will be tackled by highly specialized models. Maybe one day we can even dream of having like a master GAN or whatever model um, that will take care of larger chunks of the distribution. Right now, I think like we, we decided to go for more uh, specialized models, but will they ever fully replace the simulation? I don't think that would be true. I don't think that would make much sense also because it is a fully data-driven uh, solution, right? So you have to still be learning from some data and where, where would that data come from if not right. something like Jam 4 and these other simulations that we use. And the other thing to keep in mind is let's say that now you want to simulate a completely different um, physical process. Well, you know, in something like Jam 4, there's a quick recipe for how to implement that and make sure it's provably correctly what you want it to to implement if we ever work to discover a new interaction or a new particle with again how do you do that right like you have to learn it from data there's no easy way to just code that into the GAN um, but yes I think like we will see more of an interplay of these uh, different modern solutions um, to to tackle some of these bottlenecks so then the so you have the machine learning the, the GAN based approach is the original simulator is it somehow completely correct in some sense and the issue is that it's just slow or is this i think you mentioned the jant for it does that introduce some uh simulation error and that could potentially also be improved over time yes yes that's a really good point of course uh the ground truth is not true ground truth unless it's real data <laughs> from the world. So uh, there are some mismodelings, even in uh, a product as, as, as thorough as, as JM4, and that can introduce some biases that we have to correct for. Um, but for you know, all intents and purposes, oftentimes JM4 is, or the data that simulators like JM4 produce um, is pretty much considered to be the ground truth in the true sense. But but no, you're right. There are still some mismodelings in that as well. I see, yeah. That is that is nice though, because I guess in the normal setting with GANs, you don't necessarily have full access to this ground truth. So I think here, for instance, you're able to investigate you're able to actually investigate like what type of physics the GAN was producing, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, and in that case, we used the simulation that we produced uh, out of Jam4 as the ground truth. So we took that at face value, and we were um, evaluating whether the data distribution coming out of our generative model uh, was matching what we saw in uh, uh, in the true ground truth distribution in terms of um, the spectrum of energies and masses and angles and fractional energies per part of, you know, of your detector, you know, all sorts of uh, marginals of, of this high dimensional distribution, were they being matched uh, fully for every type of particle that we were interested in, um, you know, in the bulk of those distributions, but also in the tails. Um, and so we were able to, to do these, these comparisons between uh, the different distributions and uh, sometimes we would get that right, uh, and sometimes that required us to to work in several iterations of, of this model to try to um, match the true distribution a little bit better. Mm -hmm. I see. Yeah, that's really interesting. Do you, so now looking back, and especially with like the benefit of of hindsight, do you think that these results were they like surprisingly good, or did you kind of think that this is a really difficult problem, or what did you think of the results of the GAN-based simulation in general? 
Um, I would say I wasn't necessarily surprised in a true sense, but that's probably because I, I don't know, we didn't really have clear expectations ahead of uh, this proof of principle work of, of right, what could right. even be possible. So uh, it's hard to be surprised if you don't set some expectations or baselines to begin with. But um, I think certainly was curious uh, to see which parts of the distribution uh, we were able to capture very accurately without explicitly uh, trying to target them or to constrain the model um, to do so by design, um, even if we did have these strong inductive biases. Um, and vice versa, it was also interesting to see uh, which parts of the data distribution were just harder to capture by the model that we had and, and then try to dig deeper into like, well, why is that the case? Is that something about the dynamics of training? Is that something about the architecture? Is that something about the data format? What can we do? Um, to make it learn better. So um, again, I, I think it was interesting to see how some of the structural and, and kinematic properties of, of these particles of this data distribution um, were being captured quite accurately across you know, the whole spectrum, like uh, lots of orders of magnitude of, of change um, across these dimensions um, and other things that were maybe um, quite a bit mismodeled and, and it required a little bit more work. But you know, it, this is all kind of, post hoc <laughs> evaluation mm -hmm. so uh, it's it's easy to to you know try to 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 fall for the confirmation bias you know you you want to ensure that things look good you know you instead you have to take the approach of how can i demonstrate that something is going wrong and how can i find that needle in the haystack um so I mean, we are lucky that in physics, whether you use GAN-based simulations or any other type of fast and even slow simulation, there is a history of, uh, of a proven track record of developing very careful evaluation and calibration techniques for all sorts of simulators. So for the GANs, it was no difference. It was you know, just a matter of, of following the recipe that we always follow, follow uh, being careful, assessing where we could trust the simulation and where we really shouldn't be using it because it's it wasn't giving us trustworthy um, results. So, um, you know, yeah, it's important to have these processes uh, in place ahead of time. And we were lucky to have inherited those from the community. As an outsider, it seems almost to introduce a new model into this process seems kind of intimidating. I mean, it's like this multi-billion dollar project. And then as you've mentioned, the tagging and the simulation, it's used in multiple different parts. So kind of how do you prove that your method is going to be, you know, robust enough, re reliable enough? Is that really an issue with uh, these models or is maybe the situation a bit different than what I'm imagining? No, no, it is very similar to what you're imagining. Um, it's uh, it's work that takes years. So even when we um, first proposed even some of those jet classification techniques, right, those would go and, and touch so many different analyses and could skew the results for the better, also for the worse, <laughs> um, for, for so many efforts. And this would have been, you know, potentially saving us millions of dollars or wasting millions of dollars if we got it wrong. So it takes years of calibration and study and really digging deeper into what's happening in these models. Uh, if they are showing improvements, are they showing real, tangible improvements that um, that show up for all sorts of particles at all sorts of energies? Or are these models perhaps picking up on uh, almost like adversarial features, some sort of features that are present maybe just in the uh, data distribution that we inherit from the simulation, but wouldn't necessarily translate into significant gains when applied to real data, would they even bias our analyses? Uh, so yes, from, from the de design and development to then you know the testing and the calibration and even the paper publication, uh, that would take years. So a lot of the work that I did within Atlas, um, I never got to publish it uh, before finishing my piece. And that's totally normal. Um, so it, it takes years because of how careful the field has to be. I mean, we have uh, a duty toward taxpayers that are funding this research to be thorough and to be careful. We have a duty towards our colleagues in uh, on the 
uh, theoretical side that are waiting for our results to validate or invalidate their work. So, you know, you, you gotta get it right. Um, and so that's why we're so careful uh, and so respectful of the process. But then, of course, there are also, sometimes we err on the side of caution, just, you know, to an extreme extent in the sense mm-hmm. that we are so skeptical of what's happening in these models that we miss out on potential innovation uh, early on because, you know, we really try to understand really what's happening. Um, and, and yeah, so I, I think there is a cultural aspect there as well. Not all fields are ready for disruption right away. It's also a cultural problem of trying to educate people to accept and not distrust, you know, not, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Not, so skeptical of of these models when when that's um not warranted right yeah 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 hopefully over time um i mean like you're saying just with the faster simulations that could translate into obviously save time save money so slowly over time hopefully the uh the benefits will become more evident and then that slowly leads to uh change in the methods that are being used and that's exactly like what happened, I would say. I think obviously it took time and for as frustrating as, as that might have been back in the days, like I, I obviously now have matured into understanding why that was needed and why it was so important. Um, and, and that's exactly what happened for jet tagging as well. I remember, you know, very early on, some of the first meetings, we would, you know, almost get yelled out of the room uh, because we, we dared to propose something as egregious as that. Um, but then with time, people saw results that weren't just, you know, a one-off. They saw consistent results. Uh, we ran all sorts of tests. We checked for robustness. And when those tests like came back positive, then, you know, people started warming up to the idea of including something like this in our pipeline. So I guess it's a matter of time. It's a matter of, of building up the culture, the consensus, the trust and earning that trust. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I think um, so. There's a lot more in the thesis. It was an impressive body of work. Maybe just in the interest of time, though, I'd, I'd like to save some time to talk about what you've done after the PhD. So after the PhD, uh, you've worked at Facebook AI Research and now DeepMind. Could you just talk through the decision process for post-PhD and maybe just a brief outline of the type of research that you're doing now? Yes, absolutely. So, uh, I mean, yeah, throughout the end of my PhD, throughout yeah, my entire PhD, but especially towards the end of my PhD, I realized that I'd become uh, more interested in answering questions about these models that we were using, really understanding what they were doing, what was happening, were they learning any physics or how were they learning it, why, um, then answering the application-driven questions uh, that we were applying them to. So I decided that I wanted to switch into pure AI research, fundamental AI research, as opposed to uh, applied AI research to a particular scientific domain. Um, and so I decided to pursue my postdoc, uh, first of all, in industry, because I had never even done an internship in industry before. I wasn't really considering uh, that career path for uh, a long <laughs> part of, of my PhD. So I never gotten a chance to do that before. So I decided, okay, maybe let's let's take that path, see how it works out, uh, both from the industry standpoint and uh, for the AI research standpoint. But I really wanted to um, maintain a really high uh, degree of academic excellence in case, you know, if things mm-hmm. did not work, I would have still been able to to keep many doors open to perhaps go back to an academic environment within academia in physics or in AI. Um, and so it was kind of a safe bet <laughs> in many ways uh, not to shut many doors behind me. Um, so yeah, I spent two wonderful years at Facebook AI Research transitioning more into what we call the science of deep learning as opposed to deep learning applied to science. So understanding something fundamental about emerging phenomena in neural networks. Um, and yeah, as of a few weeks ago, I, I joined DeepMind uh, here in London. And I mean, yeah, throughout the past two years, I've been working on model compression, um, as a scientific tool to um, to intervene 
on a model and see uh, what the consequences of that interventions are. If you want to think about it in terms of like causal terms, so you have an intervention and you see what the results are. So, so that's exactly what I've been working on. Due to the the type of physics research that you're doing, which was uh, associated with machine learning, do you find that a typical day uh, now is actually kind of similar to during your PhD, or do you think it's different now that you're in pure machine learning research? It is very similar, I must confess. It's not uh, different at all. I've spent my days reading papers on the archive, talking to my collaborators, attending meetings, training networks, analyzing them, plotting uh, things about them, and, and trying to understand what's going on. So setting up experiments to test hypotheses, that it, it's exactly the same thing as this, you know, the type of data that we're applying them to and the type of questions that we're trying to answer with them is, is slightly different. And there is obviously much more of a um, of a motive here right now of understanding something about the models themselves as opposed to um, understanding something about the data. Like the data is just kind of like a proxy to then test hypotheses about the model. Um, so, but but yeah, my day to day is is very very similar, especially um, if I compare. You know, I mean, okay, I've only been at DeepMind for for a few weeks, so it's hard for me to say. Um, but, um, yeah, this collaborative environment reminds me a lot of my days at CERN. I see. Yeah. And yeah, one thing I really like about machine learning is that it, it pulls from all these different fields, right? So you could, you could do mathematics during your PhD or undergrad and contribute to machine learning. You could obviously do physics. Do you think that there's some notion of a physicist mindset and, do you think that that mindset is useful for machine learning research? I think all sorts of mindsets, as you said, are really important. So that's why it's great to have all sorts of diverse backgrounds uh, contributing to research in AI. I mean, speaking of, of the physicist mindset, I think, okay, well, what do we bring to the table? Um, I mean, I, I hope it's... Um, uh, robust and principled ways of um, going about setting up experiments and testing hypotheses um, and the ways that we think about dynamics and dynamical systems and um, unrolling events in time or even how we think of symmetries. Something that we kind of touched upon earlier on, mm. um, symmetries in the system and how to embed them and how to exploit them. Um, and I think the sciences in general are a field where that dilemma, like the, the decision point between going fully data-driven or uh, taking the approach of incorporating inductive biases, that conversation is very much alive in the sciences. And I think scientists that um, come to the AI uh, stage will be able to bring in their point of view given the, the conversations that they've had in the past around these topics. So yes, I think there is um, something important about this, the physicist mindset, but there is something important about anybody's mindset. And that's why it's great to have such diverse teams working working around me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, this has been a really great discussion. So I like to end with two questions on the thesis review. So the first is, if you could think back to during your PhD, what would you say was your objective function? Was it about scientific discovery? Was it um, about, you know, planning uh, a career? And do you think that now it's your objective function has changed or is it largely stayed the same? Um, I think at the very beginning of my PhD, I, I perhaps had this uh, very naive, grand belief uh, in a PhD being like a pathway towards the highest point of human pursuit of, of, of knowledge and this kind of glorious story in my mind of <laughs> what I was going to do and why and what my role in the world was. And all of that was you know, sort of related to pushing the boundaries of human intellect and, uh, you know, and all of that. And it was, it was wonderful. I, I think it, it was a bit naive <laughs> in some ways, but um, it's important to have that at least early on in your PhD to be able to, to make it through. But uh, mm. I must confess, eventually that kind of faded off and my objective function went more into survival <laughs> so you know, I, I like to say that I went from like discovery to self-discovery 
Uh, and I think both stages are important uh, for, for my personal growth. And uh, yeah, so that, that's my answer. <laughs> yeah, no, that's really great. And then uh, the last question of the thesis review is always, if you could think back and come up with one piece of advice for a new researcher, and it doesn't have to be all-encompassing, it could even just be a useful heuristic, or if you want, it could be some grand piece of advice. <laughs> okay, I'll show um, I think the most important lesson and therefore advice uh, to me is to really take the time during your PhD to listen to yourself and to understand yourself. So to learn about what you need, what you like, uh, what your mind and body uh, need and, and you can get to to know yourself and you can learn all of that by trial and error during your PhD. You're allowed to make mistakes. Mistakes are relatively inexpensive at this stage in your career. So you're expected to be making mistakes um, and, and it's totally okay. And that's an important phase of your PhD that will allow you to, to develop a better understanding of how to tackle those situations in the future, what works for you and what doesn't work for you, instead of just imitating what works for everybody else around you, you really need to take the time to develop your own coping mechanisms and your own solutions. Um, and also that, that applies, you know, both to your well-being, but also to your research um, directions, just because everybody is excited and focused on a particular research direction, that doesn't make it great for you to work on it. So you really have to understand what makes you click, what makes you stay up at night until you find an answer to. Um, and this, like that process of self-discovery, I think, is really important. And you have the time to do that during your PhD. Um, so, so do take that time to do that. Right, yeah. So understanding oneself on the way to understanding fundamental particles and deep neural networks. Yeah. Sure, exactly that. <laughs> Well, thanks so much for taking the time to do this interview. This has been a great conversation. It was great going through your thesis. I learned a ton. I would encourage anyone who is loosely interested in this area to take a read. And it's exciting to see how you've moved into machine learning research. I'll be excited to follow along uh, your research there. And so thank you so much for coming on the thesis review. Thank you, Sean. It's been a pleasure.